Shalom and welcome to another episode of Spirit of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Collins, and tonight is our third and final installment of the God's Prophetic Calendar series that I was blessed to present at Elkhorn Baptist Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. This final part covers what we refer to as the Fall Feast and was actually recorded just before the Feast of Trumpets was to begin that evening. I love to talk about our Father, but I cannot begin to describe how awesome it was these last few weeks to be able to share about His Word and the presence of now friends who love God and His Word as much as I do. I pray that they were as blessed as I was. So without further ado, I will share with you the final part of that message. Hey y'all, thanks again for having me back for this final week of covering God's prophetic calendar. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been going through Leviticus 23 and the Lord's holy days. We've seen that to be on the same page as God, it's helpful to be on the same calendar. Not only are these prophetic rehearsals pointing us toward Jesus, but observing them is also preparation. We talked about how Yeshua fulfilled the spring feast to a T at his first coming. He established his priesthood and he was the humble servant who came to serve. But now we're going to look at his second coming and when he comes as a conquering king to set up his government on earth. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will establish his throne in Jerusalem where he will reign. So real quick, let's talk about the month that we've been in for the last 30 days. This has been the month of Elul. And traditionally, these last 30 days have been a time of self-audit, self-introspection, because Elul literally means in Hebrew, an accounting of the soul. So for this entire month leading up to the fall feast, it's a time of realigning yourself to God, drawing nearer to Him, and making restoration with your fellow man. Just seeking forgiveness from God and and from your neighbor and making right any wrongs that you may have done throughout the year. Also, this is a time traditionally taught that God is nearest to his people. Uh, It says the king is in the field. This is the time when David danced among his people. So it's, again, traditionally taught that since God is nearest to us during this time, that he is more open to hearing our prayers and more receptive. But again, that's tradition. So these last 30 days that we have been in, plus we're coming up on the Feast of Trumpets and 10 days later is the Day of Atonement. These 30 plus the first 10 days make up the 40 days of repentance. So it's not just the 30, it bleeds over into the first 10 for a total of 40 days of self-introspection. And 40 days, as you know, is a time of testing. So if you think about how many days that it rained when they were on the ark, 40. How many days were the children of Israel in the wilderness? Or I'm sorry, how many years rather were the children of Israel in the wilderness? They were there for 40 
years, how many days was Yeshua in the wilderness also being tested? 40 days. So we can see the pattern that that number is always related to testing. And where does judgment start? We know that it begins in the house of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it starts with us. So, and that brings us into the discussion about the fall feast. So Leviticus 23, the parts that we haven't covered yet, is the Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. Then that happens on that happens on the first day of the seventh month. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, which we just talked about, is the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And then finally, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. So, who remembers when a day starts according to the biblical calendar? Exactly. It starts in the evening. And who knows what holy day starts tonight? Yep. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, starts tonight. So let's start off by reading some scripture. Leviticus 23, 23. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, You shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall make an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So, just a short scripture, but so much there. So, we see right off the bat that it is a Sabbath. So, he reiterates, no working. Number two, it is a memorial. So this is something we need to remember. Number three, blowing of trumpets. That is the Hebrew word teruah. That's where we get yom teruah. And that is Strong's H8643. And so if we hop over to the Strong's Concordance, it tells us that it is has all of these different meanings it means to shout or shouting it's an alarm it's a sound it's a blowing it's joy it's again an alarm a signal a sound of tempest shouts blast of war sounding an alarm an alarm of war a war cry a battle cry joy It's a blast for a march. It's a shout for joy with religious impulse or a shout for joy in general. So you can see that it's, it makes me think of the scripture about a joyful noise. Definitely a theme of joy in some of those, but certainly a noise with each one. And back to Leviticus 23, 23, we also saw that it was a holy convocation. So I wanted to make sure that I brought uh, this Hebrew word up. It's mikra. And that is Strong's H7121. So over the last couple of weeks, I've talked so much about these being wedding rehearsals. And I didn't want you to think that I had just really gone out and stretched that. I wanted you to see this here. That when you see that word convocation, it literally means rehearsal. So I know we don't really get that in the translation. But go to the, go to the concordance and look. It's H7121 Mikra. And convocation means rehearsal. So, uh, the Feast of Trumpets is also mentioned in Numbers 29, verses 1 through 3. We won't go read that scripture, but basically tells us the same thing. When we're supposed to keep it, and it's a feast of blowing the trumpets and a Sabbath. So, outside of the instructions for the sacrifices that we are to take to the Levitical priesthood, we simply rest, remember, 
and make noise. So that's a pretty simple holy day to be able to honor. So we're going to be able to see as we read through some scriptures today, what trumpets were used for. And just some of those things, I'll kind of give you a sneak peek. They were, they were used for gathering God's people together. They were blown at the coronation of kings. They were sounded to raise an alarm and warn people. And then also out of praise and joy. So one of the most predominant stories that I know comes to mind when we talk about the blowing of trumpets is the story about the walls of Jericho. I'm not going to read the whole story, but I do want to touch on just a few verses. Verse 2 says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war. Go round about the city once, and thou shalt do this for six days. And seven priests shall bear the ark, seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the cities will fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Oh, what a story. So we see this shofar, these trumpets, they're a weapon of war, pairing it with the shouting, with the the voice from their mouth and the blowing of the trumpet paired with the obedience of circling the city for seven days and then on the seventh day they made seven rounds and together they were able to take the city I mean that is just an amazing story but it it just reiterates verses 16 and 20 that that's what came to pass when the priest blew the trumpets on the seventh time Joshua said unto the people shout for the Lord hath given you the city so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets and it came to pass that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city and every man straight before him they took the city So let's look at Gideon's army over in Judges 7. Verses 16 says, And he divided 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, you shall do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow your trumpets also on every side of all of the camp and say, so they're shouting, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the 100 men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch and they had but newly set the watch and they blew their trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all and they cried they shouted the sword of the lord and of gideon and they stood every man in his place round about the camp And all the host ran and cried and fled. So again, we see these trumpets as weapons of war. So let's go look at some other verses of trumpets in scripture. So let's go back to Numbers 10 
and start at the beginning. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shall thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they blow them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. When you blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When you blow the alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound an alarm. For the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. I can't help but think that's talking about Terry as he blows the shofar calling together your assembly every Sunday morning. Psalm 81 verse 3 says, Blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. Psalms 153 says, Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with psaltery and harp. Now we're seeing the shofars and the trumpets being used for praise. Jeremiah 419 he talks, he says, my bowels, my bowels, I'm pain at my heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Then there's several mentions about the trumpets being blown at the coronation of kings. We saw it with Absalom. We saw it with Solomon, with Yehu. We've, it was so many all through First and Second Kings and in Second Samuel. Also in Ezekiel 33.3, we see it says, If when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. In fact, we should really read all of Ezekiel 33. But how do we know that Jesus comes back on Rosh Hashanah? So most people will say it's impossible to know when Jesus is returning. And even Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. To which I agree, he did say that. Matthew 24, 36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But I want to talk about a couple of things. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. So we know that these are rehearsals, that these are prophetic. They are shadows of things to come. And the Bible gives us some pretty big clues. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, for the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Hmm. Then 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So some pretty big clues right there. But let's let's continue reading. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and its works will be laid bare. Revelation 3.3 says, Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. 
and you will not know the hour when I will come upon you. Revelation 16, 5 says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who remains awake and clothed, so that he will not go naked and let his shame be exposed. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, it says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you like a thief. So let's talk about this. So first, obviously, this aligns with a wedding custom. Yeshua has gone to prepare a place, and it is up to the Father to tell the groom when it is finished and when he can go and fetch his bride. So yes, only the Father knows exactly when he will send his son back. But also, let's talk about some idiomatic expressions. You can just Google the day or the hour that no one knows and see what that means. But in other words, literally everyone Jesus said that to knew exactly what he meant. So that would be like if I was to look at Terry before he went up on stage and I said, go break a leg. Every one of y'all would know exactly what I meant. I would simply be wishing him luck. But if there was someone here who wasn't from our culture, he would think, how rude. Or what if I wrote a letter to Ginger and I was telling her how it had been raining cats and dogs at my house. Or I wrote a single friend and I was telling her after a breakup that there were other fish in the sea. It would make complete sense to us, no question, but imagine a culture on the other side of the planet stumbling across these letters 2,000 years from now. They're going to think that I'm rude, that I'm nuts, and that my friend has an unhealthy relationship with marine life. But that's kind of like how it is with us reading some things in the Bible. We're from a different culture and from a different time, and so we lose part of that in translation. So we have to consider the context and the culture of the audience to catch some of the things written in here. So I say all of that to say that the day or the hour that no man knows is an idiomatic expression referring to the new moon. So to celebrate the new moon in Bible times, a couple of things would happen. When it is a new moon, the moon is completely dark. You can't see it. And they would look, they would have watchers looking to see when the sliver of light of the new moon may show up. Sometimes it would be a day, sometimes it would be three days, but you couldn't start the celebration early. So these watchers, they would be out in the fields looking. And when a watcher saw the sliver of the new moon, they would run back and tell the council or the Sanhedrin that the the new moon had been spotted and where? The first witness. So then as soon as another watcher saw the sliver, they would run and tell the second witness. And it would take two, as per scripture, Deuteronomy 19, 15, two or three witnesses to establish a matter. So then the council would declare that the new moon has started and celebrations could commence. So when he said it was the day or the hour that no one knew, everyone knew exactly what and when he meant. That's what this feast had always been called. Also called the day of watching. And what are we supposed to do when Jesus returns? Watching. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-10. Well, let's not read the whole thing. Let's all back up. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But a thief in our human understanding may not be a good example or an analogy to represent or symbolize the day of the Lord. Our Lord is awesome. And to compare Him to a thief the way our Western mind works. I wanted to look into that a little more, but 
Because Jesus came that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. It was the enemy who came to kill, steal, and destroy. So what what is this thief in the night? And come to find out, also a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't refer to a criminal thief at all that comes in the middle of the night, taking us by surprise and stealing our belongings or killing us. In fact, it's somebody who has a high calling and an honorable task to fulfill. Psalm 134 verse 1 says, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who by not stand in the house of the Lord. For you see, in the temple of God, there was a priest who was posted every night on duty to ensure that the last sacrifice for the day was completely consumed. He also had to guard the fire on the altar to keep it burning through the night to be ready for the next morning sacrifice because the fire was not supposed to go out for any reason. And somehow, the priest on duty would just become tired and sleepy. And sometimes... Through the night, he might fall asleep. If the last sacrifice was consumed and the flames were still burning, he might catch some moments to nap, a rest while he's waiting. He would wake up every now and then to fuel the flames and add wood and fan the fire before going back to sleep again. And so this would happen throughout the night until the rising of the sun. However, it was highly possible for this priest on duty to fall asleep totally and fail to perform his responsibilities tending to the fire, and sometimes the fire would go out. So here is where the thief in the night would come. Sometimes during the night watches, the high priest would enter the temple very quietly, like a thief to check and ensure that the priest on duty was fulfilling his duties. And he might be accompanied by his faithful assistant. So first, the high priest and his assistant would check the fire to see whether the flames were still alive. If necessary, even they would add some wood and fan the flames. If the priest on duty was found asleep... Then the high priest would take an ember of coal from the burning fire and sneak quietly around the sleeping priest. He would place this burning coal on the garment of that sleeping priest. And then when his clothes were on fire, the sleeping priest would obviously wake up and he would have no choice but to rip off his burning clothes and run home naked and ashamed so the thief in the night you see was the high priest which yeshua is our high priest and the high priest was coming to check whether those on duty were found being faithful watching and carrying out their responsibilities or if they would be found asleep and punished So it makes so much more sense now when we read Revelation 16, 15, when it says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And this was just after Yeshua paralleled his coming with the flood of Noah. And if you think about it, the people who did not know the timing of the flood, they were taken away. While those who did know the flood was coming, they were protected because they were on alert. He goes on to say in verses 43 and 44, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, 
he would have kept watch and he would have not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So if you notice, he doesn't say that the owner would have known the time because he watched, but rather he would have watched because he knew the time. So if we follow the Lord's command to be alert and watch, that means we'll already know the season of his return, just as the homeowner would have. We just don't know the hour. So to put this in everyday principles that can apply to us, if if I tell you I'm coming to see you this weekend, you're not going to start looking for me on Tuesday or Wednesday. Of course not. You're going to start looking for me on Friday around the time that I said that I was going to come. So the same principle applies here. 1 Thessalonians 5, let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But in whose perspective does he come like a thief in the night? To the believer or the unbeliever? So let's read verse 4. It says, But you, brothers... Are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. And then also in Revelation 3 3, he says, Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So we have two witnesses here clearly showing us that Yeshua will come like a thief only to those who are not following him. Those who are following him will know when to start looking for him. If you are walking in the light and you are observing his feast according to the times and the seasons set in place from the beginning, then you will know the season of when he will return. So knowing this, let's consider what happens in the last trumpet of Revelation when that seventh trumpet blows. That's when the kingdom of the Lord comes to earth. Revelation 11, starting in verse 15, and let's read 16. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. And now at this time, at the last trumpet, our Lord has established his great power and reign on earth, saying, now let's read 17, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, to the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So then when he returns, the wrath begins to destroy those who destroy the earth. It's also when we receive our rewards and our judgment, whether we are to be least or great in the kingdom. So now let's read 18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So now let's read Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31 says immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the son of man in heaven and then shall all of the tribes of the earth mourn 
and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so we've already talked about the new moon. And on the feast of Rosh Hashanah, on the feast of trumpets, the new moon is darkened. And that's why we're watching, looking for the moon. So the moon is not giving her a lot. A huge clue there in verse 29. And he shall send his angels in verse 31 with a great sound of a trumpet. So again, the correlation of trumpets and his return again. Joel 2 verses, well, we could read verses 1 through 17. Um, Let's start with verse 2. It says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Then Hosea 8, 1, put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Isaiah 27, 13 says, so it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord at the holy mountain in Jerusalem. I think we've already read this, but we'll read it again. Matthew twenty four thirty one. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And this is fulfilling Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 and 4, when Moses said, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. So the sounding of the trumpets, it's a calling together. It's also a wake-up call. The sounding of trumpets on Yom Teruah is a wake-up blast. It's a sober reminder that the time is near for the Day of Atonement. This is an alarm. It's a call to repentance and returning to the ways of our Father. Prophetically, it is a foreshadow of our Messiah's return in which we are called to be watching and ready. Isaiah 58.1 says, Shout it aloud and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Jeremiah 6, 16 through 19, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations, you who are witnesses, observe what will happen to them. Hear, you earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and they have rejected my law. We need to wake up. We need to return to doing Bible things and Bible ways. We need to return to these ancient paths or we will be subject to this disaster if we do not hearken to his words, if we continue to reject his law. Also, if we fail to blow the trumpet and warn people, we can be held accountable for that. 
Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 11, and then again in Acts chapter 20, 26 through 31. Romans 13, 11 through 13 says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. It is time to wake up. The shofar is being blown. So on the Feast of Trumpets, the shofar is actually blown 100 times. The first blast is called a tekiah, and it's one long straight blast. Then the next are called the shavarim, and it's three shorter blasts. And then followed by chirua, which are nine quick blasts. And then the final great blast is known as the last trump. So let's move on and talk about the Day of Atonement. I know we're getting crunched for time. Uh, So the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, is also in Leviticus. It's Leviticus 23 verses 27. And it's the only one of God's commanded holy days where a fast is required. Well, actually, the, the verse says to afflict your souls. It's commonly... Uh, observed as fasting and again it corresponds to the wedding ceremony when the bride and the groom also fast on their wedding day Uh, no work whatsoever is done on this day it is considered a high sabbath it is considered the holiest day of the year Uh, it's primarily recorded in leviticus chapter 16 and 23 And then Numbers chapter 29, verses 7 through 11. It's on the 10th day of the 7th month, which is Tishri, from sunset on the 9th day to sunset on the 10th. It's a time when an annual ritual performed by the high priest, and it symbolized the taking away of the sins of the people. Uh, Again, you can read Leviticus 23, Hebrews 9, verse 22. But Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, uh, in the symbolism of Yom Kippur, he was representing Yeshua, our high priest. And he would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And that is representing God's throne in heaven. Since Aaron, as he was a human being he himself was unqualified to stand before god so he had to be ceremonially cleansed and have his sins forgiven too but this holiday or holy day has a really unique event in that they would randomly select and what they would do they would cast lots to choose one goat to represent the Lord and another one to represent Azazel uh, or Satan. And by casting lots, that was just, that was an ancient way of allowing God to decide something rather than the imperfect ways of man. The man, a human could choose the wrong one. But the centerpiece of Yom Kippur begins when this Azazel goat has the sins of the people placed on it by Aaron. And then it was released into the wilderness. The goat that represented Jesus was then killed as a sin offering. The blood from that sacrifice was then taken by the high priest into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies. So the high priest was only allowed once a year on this holy day, the Day of Atonement, to enter the Holy of Holies. Once inside, he would sprinkle the blood from this sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So, fun fact, um, 
and it's kind of random. I can't prove it, but if you are interested in some of the same things that I'm interested in, uh, it would you might find it neat to look into a man named Ron Wyatt. Uh, his last name W Y A T T, and see if you can research um, some of the things that he has put out. Uh, I think it was a YouTube documentary. I think it was that I have watched about his search for the Ark of the Covenant. Ron White is a biblical archaeologist, and he claims that on one of his excavations in a cave under Golgotha that he saw the Ark of the Covenant, that God allowed him to see just a little bit of it for just a little bit before rocks covered it over again, but that the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a cave under Golgotha, directly under where Air Messiah was crucified. So there's a chance, if this is true, that the blood from our high priest could have come through the earth and have may have already dripped down onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant because we know his sacrifice did atone for our sins. So it's just beautiful, beautiful story if you want if you want to look into that. But again, you know, I digress. I'll get back to scripture, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture to just imagine. But again, the day of atonement uh, is a day where believers fast for a full 24 hour period. We are commanded to afflict ourselves. Um, again, it corresponds to when the bride and the groom would both fast on the day of their wedding prior to consummation. Judgment then would be passed on whether the blood was shed during confirmation, proving if the bride was found to be a virgin or not. So again, uh, the foreshadowing of the Day of Atonement when Yeshua would take away our sins and the devil be cast out into the wilderness and Judgment Day. The next Holy Day is the Feast of Tabernacles. So some scripture on this, also known as Sukkot. Exodus 23, 16 says, Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor from what you sow into the field. Also the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruits of your labors from the field. Leviticus 23 commands us to rejoice during this holiday. Deuteronomy 16 verses 13 through 17 commands us to be joyful and to give into accordance on how we are blessed. John 7, 2 through 3 says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. Then in chapter or verse 14, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 12. Then Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of your remission of debts, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all of Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the children, and the alien who is in your town, so they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law. We also see it again in the millennial reign, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. Then it will come about 
that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Revelation 7, 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. So let's compare this to a scripture about Sukkot, Leviticus 23:40. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brooks, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So a huge clue there that Revelation 7-9 happens during the time of Sukkot. The word Sukkot means booths. And that's a temporary dwelling place. So throughout this holiday, we observe this time by building and dwelling in temporary shelters. Just like the Hebrew people did while they were wandering in the desert. It's a joyous celebration And it's a reminder of God's deliverance, protection, provision, and faithfulness. Psalm 27 verses 5 and 6 says, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy And I will sing and make music to the Lord. So we have tents and joy. And that says Sukkot. Psalm 61, 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Let me live forever in your sanctuary safe beneath the shelter of your wings. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Also, this just says Sukkot to me. If you remember, um, he bore his people out of Egypt on eagle's wings. So we see the wings, the very first place that they built booths and they camped was in Sukkot. And he was, they were there in his shelter in these booths protected from the enemy. They had just saw their enemies wiped out in the Red Sea. So there is such a correlation to this time to being in God's protection, the provision of manna and rejoicing in this time. It's just a beautiful holiday. And it's next to Passover, my favorite one that I look forward to year after year. It is also a reminder that our flesh, this tent, this temple is also a temporary dwelling place. And our goal is to someday be changed in the twinkle of an eye for this mortality to take on immortality, for this corruption to take on incorruption. So during the Feast of Tabernacles in the Bible, there are two important traditional ceremonies that take place. The Hebrew people, they carry torches around the temple, illuminating bright candles along the walls of the temple to demonstrate that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. And also, the priests, they would draw water from the pool and carry it into the temple where it was poured into a silver basin beside the altar called the water libation ceremony. 
So during this water libation ceremony, the priest would call upon the Lord to provide heavenly water in the form of rain for their supply. Also during this ceremony, the people would look forward to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, we, we, and we've already read some verses from there, how Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles, but he spoke these words on the last and greatest day of the feast during the water, liba- water libation ceremony. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has stated, streams of living water will flow from within him. Which is beautiful. So we see him already fulfilling elements of Sukkot. And while the torches were being lit, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Sukkot pointed to the truth that Israel's life and our lives too rest on the redemption, which is in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin and how when he returns, he will tabernacle among men. As we close, this scripture came to mind. We've, we've already talked a little bit about the tents and the Feast of Tabernacles. But I want to ask you guys to read Psalm 91. It's all about the secret place of the Most High. And it's referred to as his tent. And there it says that you are in his shadow. And to walk in someone's shadow, you would have to walk very close to someone to always stay within that small area of their shadow. I remember as a little girl, I actually would do that a lot with my dad. I would, I would try to walk in his shadow as we walked a lot. And, you know, it was, it was difficult. You would have to speed up a little and slow down a little. And, but I would have to walk as he walked. And what did Jesus do? So to walk in his shadow, to walk as he walked, we would have to do the things that Yeshua did and he kept Sabbath and he ate kosher. He kept these feasts. He wore tassels and he kept God's commandments. So to truly walk as he walked, it takes a lot of dying to our flesh. And he literally died in his flesh. Do we have that level of dedication? Are we dedicated enough to the ways of Jesus that we'd be willing to let our flesh spiritually die, much much less physically die, to remain faithful in obedience to Him? I believe, based on what I read, that if we walk in His ways, If we pursue him, pursue only him and not selfish matters, if we put him first as the goal, remember the word telos, if he is the goal, if he is what we are aimed at, our eyes fixed upon, looking forward to and looking toward, I believe that then we can do greater works. People can be healed, the dead can be raised, and the way we live our lives can be a walking testimony of the goodness of God. God is calling us back, back to begin to do Bible things and Bible ways. So let's reassess our commitment to the call, not just in words, but in action Remember the chair. Let's put action 
into our faith. Let's remember that scripture in Revelation. Let's be of those that keep the commandments, have the testimony of Jesus, and love not our lives until the death. I pray the Lord will help us abandon the things that we need to abandon, to hate the things that He hates, to love the things that He loves. I pray that He will break down the walls of our traditions and religions, and as the song says, to make room for Him, for His way is better. Thank you guys again so much for allowing me to come in and share this message with you. I pray that you have been blessed and I look forward to hearing your experiences as you begin to honor and observe the holy days that was commanded by our Father. God bless you all.